Area 10 Faith Community meets in the historic Bird Theater in Carytown in Richmond, Virginia. We worship together at 10 a.m. on Sunday mornings, both in person and online at youtube.com slash area10church. Kid-friendly programming is also available at the same time just down the street at 2810 at Community Gathering Place. We hope to see you at the Bird Theater soon. Now, on to this week's message. If you came up to me at any point and said to me, Hey, Chris, how are you doing? My answer depends on a lot of things. What I'm, what I'm thinking in the moment, what I'm feeling in the moment. Uh, and, and there could be a lot of things going on inside me and inside you, right? These things could be going on simultaneously. So if you say, how are you doing? The answer I give you depends on which one of the things I want to tell you about, about how I'm feeling right now. I could be um, excited by my work day and things that are going on. I could be stressed out about something with my kids. I could be uh, energized from the workout that I got in earlier. I could be nervous about a meeting that I have later. Like, all of those things can be true simultaneously. Uh, and, and the one that is sort of dominant, or the one I might tell you, is the one I, maybe I'm focusing on in the moment. What you, what you focus on really shapes the experience that you're having. Another way of, of saying that maybe a little more cleanly is your outlook determines your outcome. Your outlook determines your outcome. What you see will shape what you are becoming. Now, I've seen this all over the place. Uh, I, I got off, uh, I was on social media, I was on Twitter a few months ago and had been on there for a few years, and I, and I closed the account and, and got off of Twitter. And um, I had a friend tell me that Twitter was really good, he explained it this way, he said, Twitter's really good to tell you what to think about. Not necessarily um, what you should be thinking about the thing, but rather what you should just think about. Like it puts things in your head. Hey, focus on this. Now think about this. Hey, focus on this. Here's, this has come up in your feed. Everyone's thinking about and caring about this. You should care about that too. And I noticed that being the case. It didn't necessarily tell me what to think about things, but it told me what to think about. And, it, it, and so once I got in that mindset, I was thinking and now, about all those things. And now that I'm off of it, I don't know what to think about anymore. Um, without it telling me. I don't know what's going on. I don't know who's flaming who about what thing that they're upset about. Uh, and I think my anxiety level has gone down a little bit. But, but what you think about shapes who you're becoming, what you're looking at, what you notice. Uh, you see this all the time when people, when people want to get in the best shape of their lives. They'll get a photo of someone that they want to look like, and they'll look at that photo as, like a, as an inspiration. Oh, I want to look like this guy. I want to look like this girl eventually, right? They, they do that. Um, we all do that. If, there's, if you, if you want to be a, a, great, a great ball player, you, you find someone who's a great ball player, and you look at that picture. Like, I want to become like that. What we see shapes who we are becoming. Um, and we probably do that in a lot of different ways. I'm not, I'm not saying... Um, People who look at photos of Bill Gates become rich. Um, I don't think that works. Uh, but I do think that if that's what we're looking at and if that's what we're assessing over, um, it does shape us. You, uh, people who are looking at health tend to become healthy. People who are looking at money-making tend to make money. People who are looking at different kinds of success tend to become more successful. Our outlook will determine our outcome. And so if that is the case it's probably important to check in on what are we actually looking at in the world? Like, what do we spend our time, energy, focusing on, looking at? Um, I, I, we, should, we should notice what we're noticing. And so I, I, want, I point that out because I think John is going to, we've been reading through the book of First John in the New Testament. It's actually a letter that the apostle John, one of Jesus' closest 12 apostles, he wrote this letter to some churches around, in western Turkey around the city of Ephesus. And he writes this letter, and he's, as we jump into the beginning of chapter 3 here, he's going to tell people to uh, see something, to look 
very closely at something because your outlook determines your outcome. What you're looking at is going to shape who you are becoming. And he wants to point us to this very foundational truth. Um, I want to pick it up where we ended last week. 1 John chapter 2, verse 28, and I want to read into the beginning of chapter 3. We'll put it up on the screen. And now, little children, abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. And he says this, verse 1. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. He reminds us to remain in him. We talked about that at the end of last week. He reminds us at the end of that chapter. And then it's almost like he, he exclaims or like he interrupts himself or he gets all excited and he basically says, see what we have in God. See what he has done for us. And the word see in English falls short of what that word is in Greek. The word, a better translation of that would not be see what God has done. It would be behold. Now that doesn't work in modern English because we don't behold hardly anything, right? That's not a word that we've used for, I don't know, 100 years or something like that. We don't, we don't say behold, this is happening. Like, that sounds old school, old English, but that's a closer translation of what he's saying. It, it's, it's stronger than just let it pass before your eyes. It's more like, look, observe this, notice this, like drink it in with your eyes, focus on this. And what does he tell you to focus on? He says, behold uh, what, what love, here's what I want you to see, here's what you observe and notice, what love the Father has given to us. Now this is another one where the English word is fine, but there's probably a better word for it, for the word given. Love, God has given love to you. The, the, a better translation for that, uh, and, and older English translations use this, is the word lavished. Look at the love. Observe, notice the love God has lavished on you. And that's weird for us because we don't think of love in those terms. We don't lavish love. Uh, the only thing we might lavish is like a gift. Gifts were lavished upon someone, you know. But it's a little more like that. We, we, we often think of love being given or like we feel it and, oh, I love someone. We don't think of love being like lavished or like bestowed upon someone. Maybe the closest we get is in marriage because in a, in a wedding ceremony, you already loved the person before you got married. And something happens on that day where you sort of summon all the love that you have in you and between you and you gather together with all the authority structures on earth and in heaven and you stand before God and friends. And at that point, you bestow your love onto another person. And, and the, the very act of that forever changes your life and theirs. That's, that's a little closer to what John is saying here is God has lavished, he has bestowed his love um, on us. And, and John wants us to notice the followers of Christ, hey, God has bestowed his love upon you. He's lavished this on you like a great gift. And it's not because you're great, uh, but because of who he is. Um, now, in a general sense, God loves everybody. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. So everybody you meet, you lock eyes with, um, God, God loves people in the world, right? That's that's sort of generally true. But I think there is a different level here of, of the love of God that, that, we're, that, we're, that he's pointing us 
to. Um, there's something different when you give your life to him, when you say, I'm going to follow you, you get baptized into Christ, there's a different level of love that, that you have there. Um, it, God bestows his love and it changes you. Well, what changes? Well, he, John tells us. Um, he says uh, that we are to be called the, the children of God, and so we are, is kind of how he says it. So what changes when God bestows his love on you is that you become his child. Now, this, this is a couple things that that means. You're call, he says, you are called children of God, and so you are. So there's, it, it, it's a weird way of saying that, but he's basically saying you're called a child of God, which is like a legal standing thing. You are now God's child. You're in his family. You have his last name or whatever. You're like God Jr. or the third or the fourth or whatever. Like you're in the family. And then not only are you called that with all the legal inheritance that that might have, you actually are, is what he says. You actually are children of God when you give your life to him. You are brought into the family, um, not in a biological sense. You're actually brought into the family sort of through adoption, um, which is kind of the, 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 the language the New Testament uses for us being in the family of God. Now, that's interesting. Paul mentions this in Galatians as well. If you've ever read the book Galatians, Paul picks up on this as well, this idea that the way we are brought into the family of God is we're adopted. So Jesus, if you use adoption terms, Jesus is the biological child of God, the bio kid, and we are brought in as the family through adoption. He's our brother, he's our adopted brother, and we are brought in, and when we are brought in through adoption, we get all of the uh, rights and responsibilities and, and legal inheritance and all the things that goes along with being a child. We get that when we join the family of God through adoption. Now, we're used to uh, thinking of adoption as like a plan B, like, oh, we don't have biological kids, we adopted. But in God's economy and the way God sees the world, uh, it's his plan A. This was always the way it was supposed to be, that we would be brought into his family through adoption. It was his intention to make us part of his family, and that is a beautiful thing. Now, you may have heard that before. You might know intellectually, oh, yeah, I'm a child of God. We sing it. I'm no longer a slave to fear. I am a child of God, right? It's a song, a worship song that we sing here. We sing that. We go, yeah, that's true. I'm, a, I'm God's child. Cool. Um, but, I, but, but even though we know that intellectually, I'm not sure we know that always in our hearts. And I think this is why John's emphasizing it. It's like, no, I, I, you need to really understand this, that you are God's child. Um, and you, so a lot of us, um, we sort of know about God, but we don't really know him. Um, in, in our hearts. Like, it's easy to know facts about God. Uh, God created the world in six days. God had a son named Jesus. God, one time back in ancient Egypt, he parted the Red Sea or, or whatever. Like, we, we can know some facts about God, but that's very different than knowing him with more firsthand experience. Like, I know about Wrigley Field. I watch Cubs, Cubs games growing up on TV. I have seen the field. I have seen that Way out there past the outfield, there's like a street that sometimes the balls go on. And I kind of have a sense of what the grass looks like. And I know there's ivy growing up the walls of Wrigley Field. And I, it's like a, it is a thing in, in sports. Like Wrigley Field is, is just awesome. I don't have first-hand experience. I don't really know it. I know about it. I don't know what it smells like. I don't know what it, I don't know what it feels like to really be there. That's the difference between knowing about something and really knowing something. And this is what we're called to, to know God, to, to have firsthand experience. And we do this with people, right? If you're, if you're married, you know your spouse. 
you know them in a way no one else knows them. People may know, know their height or their hair color, their eye color, and they know some facts about that person, but you know them in a firsthand way. Ins and outs and all the different sides of a person. Like you, you, you get them, you know their heart, you, you understand them. It is a very different thing. It's, it's not just head knowledge, it's heart knowledge, and it's, it's firsthand experience. And, and this is what we're called, and, and what John wants us to have is to know God, to, to be his children, to be in the family, which is a firsthand experience of something. This is what we're supposed to have. Now, my guess is that firsthand experience of God is not something many of us would say we have. Um, maybe for you, you felt like, oh, I mean, I've gone through religious motions. I've learned about God. I went to Bible class, or I've been to a small group, or I went to Sunday school when I was a kid, um, and I know some facts about God, but I don't really know God. And I think the challenge for us, and, um, and this is a function of just like the human experience, like there are limitations to how much you can just brain know something. And so I think the challenge for us is how do we move beyond just in our brains knowing about God to having a, an experience? And I would say it this way. I would say I, I think it's moving beyond rational. I don't mean irrational because irrational would be like less than rational. I'm saying something beyond rational in our experience of God. Like rationally, can I understand what God's doing as much as my finite brain can? Yeah, I can kind of see how he's at work and I can kind of understand who this creator of the universe, even though I'm finite and embodied and, and, and limited in time and history and whatever, even though that's me, I'm very limited. I can kind of understand this infinite creator being. I can kind of get that, but it's got to move beyond just thought. It's, it moves beyond the rational into something that that overflows into, into the whole body, uh, that we experience him. Um, it's not, he, he doesn't, God doesn't become something we just think about. It's something we, he, he becomes something we, we kind of are about, not just something we think about. Um, I know that's, that's odd, but I think this is what, when John says, behold, look what God has done. He's made us his children. I, I think this is what he's trying to get us at, is there's something deep going on here. There's something profound and great in the world that, that, is, that has actually happened. He says, behold, notice this. Let it overwhelm you. This is who God has made you to be, not his servant, not his employee, not his coworker. You are not God's middle manager. You're his child. You are actually family with God. It's a big deal. And I think there's two implications of this. Let me, let me read you the next two verses and then we're done. Uh, Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Beloved, we are God's children now. And he's talking about there's this future transformation that Jesus will appear again, and when he does, we will be fully transformed. Now, there is a purification process. The, the, a lot of the New Testament, um, the, the, the term is sanctification. We talk about it, that the Holy Spirit lives inside of us, and he's changing us from the inside out. This is process over time. We are becoming more like Jesus. And, and, and John promises that one day we're going to see him face to face, and the ultimate transformation will take place. 
Um, but I would also argue this. Number one, being God's child has the power to change us. Being God's child, being in that family has transformative power. This is true of all families. The, the family you grew up in, your family of origin, changed you and shaped you to be who you are today. Right? Don't you, as much as you don't like to admit, don't you kind of have a sense of humor like those people that you came from? Don't you kind of have an outlook like those people that you came from? Like, for good or bad, whatever, it's real. And if you don't think you do, get married and you will find out very quickly that you are like a different group of people and your people are not like their people, right? You're going to come in with like, well, I mean, this is just the way we do it. And your spouse is going to be like, what? You do what? Why would you do that? You monster with the toilet paper. Like, who, who do you think you are? And it's like, well, this is just what we do. And we think everybody does this, and we think it's just the way it is. What is that? That is you have been shaped by your family. Sometimes it's good, sometimes it's bad, but it definitely happens. We are all shaped by our family of origin, right? And John says, you are God's child. Therefore, that also shapes you. You are born again is the language of the New Testament. You were born again into a new family. You are now in God's family, and that will further shape you and influence you. You carry the name of Christ. You are a Christian. If you're born again in Christ, you, you're a Christian. You carry this name with you. Just like your parents gave you a name, and their DNA lives in you, in a similar way, you were born again in this new family, and God's Holy Spirit lives in you, and it and it changes you. Now, becoming like your family of origin happens, it feels like to us, it feels like it happens almost accidentally. How many of you ever said something and you sound like your mother? You know what, is she in the room? Sorry. It, it's great when we sound like our mothers, if you're in the room, just want you to know. Or, or you, like, you don't try to make a dad joke that your dad made, but one day your five-year-old looks at you and then you say something and you're like laughing and they're looking at you like you're weird and you're like, I just made a dad joke like my dad used to do. Like I can't, what happened here? Like you don't try to do that. It just comes out of you like some epigenetic thing in your soul um, and it comes out and you are like them. So becoming like your family of origin happens almost accidentally, it seems like. But becoming like God's child and becoming like his family, that's different. There's an intentionality with that. So if we are going to become like the new family that we're in, we have to to become like God, to become like Jesus, to grow into his likeness. Yes, the Spirit's going to do his work, but we need to listen to him and actually read his words and understand what he's saying. And Jesus doesn't teach us things so that we'll know them. He teaches them so we will obey them. So we have to read his words and then start following them and going, this is what it means to be in God's family. I am his child now. This is my new identity. And over time, as we, as we do this, um, we, it will change us. Following him, worshiping him, praying to him, reading his words, this actually literally changes your brain chemistry when, when we pray, when we do these things. Um, it'll change what you value. It'll change how you... Um, prioritize money, um, where your focus is, what you're looking at. 
If you're not a Christian, money is whatever you want it to be. It's you get it for a job, you spend it however you want. If you are a Christian, you have to go, okay, money now is a gift from God that I steward, I use for him, for his glory, that all of my money is his money, and I need to treat it appropriately and handle it differently. If you're not a Christian, work could be, hey, I'm going to do a job so that I get paid, so I can do my thing, and I'm going to build a company or whatever. If you are a Christian, you can do those things also, but you also think in terms of work is given to me by God for the flourishing of humanity, and it is good that I have a job. It is good that I work, and it is good that I build something out of the world that God has created. And so we see our work with that sort of divine purpose. These are different ways that we think and believe and act when we are part of the family of God. Um, it, it changes our mind and our heart because we have a different identity as children of God. So number one, being God's child, it truly has the power to change us. And number two, um, we need to remember that as a child of God, we have an inheritance coming to us. Part of being a child is there's an inheritance coming to you. Now, I know that's not literally true for every single person in the room. Um, I understand that various incomes and, you know, investments and things like that, and like, okay, and maybe you're in the will or you're not in the will, but generally the principle is as, as parents pass on, they leave things to their children, and so there's some sort of inheritance. Um, and that inheritance that you get is not based on your awesomeness, is it? It's based on your status as a child. Okay, you're my kid, so you get my inheritance. Now, I, you can, you know, work your way out of the will, I suppose, right? Like, there, you, stories of that all, all over the place. Oh, you're, you're cut out or whatever. But, but generally, the basis of you being part of the will and part of the inheritance is, is that you're part of the family, um, and in a similar way, John points us to this future meeting with Jesus, and we will be like him in that moment. He's pointing us to a, a future inheritance. We are going to come face-to-face with Jesus one day, and we will be changed. We will become more like him, and we will be in a place that is described as paradise. Um, heaven is not clouds and harps. It is uh, a physical, new, a new earth, a new, a new place. And we don't know all the details. Apparently, it's involved. It has a city, so I hope you like urban uh, development because there's it's urban. Uh, but there are golden streets, um, and there's a tree, and there's a river, and there's all these things that these ways of describing what the future is going to look like. Um, and for Christians, we believe that as part of the family, this is part of the inheritance coming to us. There is paradise, and. Like I said, we don't know exactly how all that's going to work, but one thing we do know from the pages of Scripture, John writes about this later in his book of Revelation, that this is a place where there's no more pain and no more sorrow. Right there, that's a good start. Like right there, I'm like, oh, sign me up for that place. No more pain, no more sorrow. Um, it's profound. And this is, this is our inheritance. There's paradise returning and there's no more pain. And I don't know how that lands on you when you hear that. If you go in your head, oh, okay, that sounds good. I guess I'm going to get that one day. But I think John would want us to know this in our bones, like in our soul. No, you are a child of God, and this is literally what is coming for you one day. 
you have an inheritance, a real, physical, in-the-world thing that's going to be so different and so unlike anything you've ever experienced or, or, or known. Because um, too often, you know, we could, you can hear this and you go, yeah, I get heaven, so what? Well, I mean, when I die, I guess that's fine. Cool. But I'm alive right now and I need some help. I get that. But I do think the idea that we have an inheritance coming to us helps us live today. I think the future is now. I, I think what we think is going to happen affects how you live right now. And we need to pay attention to that. Knowing that you have no pain one day changes how you deal with pain now. Yeah, I may have pain and disappointment and suffering and sorrow now, and I will, but knowing that God has a plan, man, doesn't that take a little bit of the sting out of it? I think it does. Knowing that when my family of origin disappoints me and there's pain and there's hurt, I have a new family. I have the family of God and that I'm, I'm his follower and I have a new name and I'm, I'm born again and adopted into this new family. Knowing that changes how I relate to my family now. Knowing that there's paradise and there's, there's, there's a home for me and, God, and Jesus is preparing a place for me changes how I view the place I have right now and did I get everything I want on earth? And did I make the money that I had hoped? And did I get all the vacations? And did, I, where my, did my kids turn out exactly all the ways that I wanted? Like, it changes your view on all of those things. Um, things don't have to turn out the way I want when I have this inheritance. I will be disappointed. You're going to be disappointed. There's going to be pain. There is going to be sorrow. But it doesn't have to be devastating. This, this, can, this can psychologically change us when we really understand and know in our hearts that, that we have an inheritance coming to us as a child of God. Um, uh, we have to remember that the 78.2 years of whatever the life expectancy is in America right now, these things are not, this is not the final word that there's more coming to us. So have you internalized that? Like, with your whole being, have you internalized the fact that there is something coming for you? Because you should. I mean, the truth is, none of us are getting any younger. And there is an end. All of this ends one day. It ends for you. Go, you know, it's one of the, I always tell people it's one of the blessings of going to funerals is that it reminds you that there's an end and that you need to think about the trajectory of your life. There is an end, there is an end and, I, and I would argue what inheritance you have coming to you matters. The, uh, I'm not a big creeds, a creedal or catechism sort of statements guy, um, but I think there's some value there to repeating these phrases over and over, whether it's from Scripture or someone kind of wrote it out into a creedal statement. The Heidelberg Catechism uh, has a, it's a question and answer format, and this is this is from the Heidelberg Catechism. It says this, question, what is your only comfort in life and death? Answer, that I am not my own, but belong with body and soul, both in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. What is your only comfort in life and death? That I, I, I'm not my own. I belong somewhere in body and soul. I am a child of God. This is my comfort. There's an inheritance, and John wants us to behold that. He wants us to, to really see it. The more we can see it, 
the more we, more it shapes us and the more we grow. So here's the question I've sort of been hinting at since the very beginning when we started this talk. The question is this, um, what do you see? What are you actually looking at? Because your outlook will shape your outcome. What you behold, what you're focused on, goes a long way to shaping what you will, what you will become. Are you looking for God? Are you looking for his handiwork? We, we, I would argue we'll never see God's handiwork unless we're at least looking for his hands. And look, is he, is, where is he at work in the world? Now, this isn't easy to see God in the world, to see his handiwork, to, to notice him, to observe Jesus in the modern day. But I think there's two ways we can do it, and I'll give you these two really quick. Number one is I think you see Jesus in the Gospels. When you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and you read his words, and you obey his words, and you see his actions, this is you seeing Jesus. How did, how did Jesus show up in everyday life? Because I'm living everyday life over here. I'm not living in the Bible. I'm living everyday life. How did Jesus show up in a village, in, in, in a farming community, or walking down the street, or when he was interrupted by people? How did Jesus show up, and can I emulate that as, as his now his sibling or, you know, in the family, as a, in that, as a child in that family, how do, I, how do I observe him? What do I see him doing? Notice it. Read it. Uh, obey his words. That's one way to keep your eyes on him is to actually look at what he did and said. And then secondly, I would say you can see Jesus in other people. See him in the examples of other people that are in the community. The Apostle Paul writes about this in 1 Corinthians 11. He says, follow my example as I follow Christ. And Paul was a good leader and a, a man of integrity and character and all that. And, and he's standing there saying, hey, um, I want you to know Jesus and follow him and with your whole heart and all of that. But he's saying, also, just like walk with me as I'm walking with him. Like I'm chasing after Jesus. You come with me, follow after me, and we will chase after him together. Um, and I think that is a way to see Jesus, is to see the way Jesus is working in other people. Now, this is really hard because the best people in the world and the best Christians in the world will still disappoint us. You will look at people and you'll be like, man, he shouldn't have said that, or her temper really got out of control, or whatever. Like, you'll, you'll, you'll be disappointed when you start looking at people to be Jesus. And I get that. Uh, that, is, that has been true of every leader that I've ever followed. It is also true of me. If you follow me, uh, there will be disappointment coming. You'll go, that's not lining up, and that's not what I was hoping. I'm not seeing a whole lot of Jesus in you right now. Like, it's not very good. Like, that disappointment will come. And, and, and I would still say, yeah, but follow people as they follow Jesus, people who are trying to do this, uh, and, and look to them so that you can see Jesus at work. Because, look, um, I, you know, if you've heard uh, uh, an eight-year-old play for Elise on the piano and you've heard them butcher it, I don't necessarily hear that and conclude that Beethoven was a terrible composer. I go, well, Beethoven was brilliant. This kid's butchering it. But that doesn't mean Beethoven wasn't a good composer. And, and I guess I would say in the same way um, when someone's not living out their faith well, even as a leader, uh, you can look at them and go, well, it doesn't mean Jesus is bad or that the composer was wrong, but it's, but it's being played poorly by this person. I, I think that's true, uh, and that does happen. Um, look to others 
Look to Jesus in the Gospels so you can really see him. And then look to others who are following him. And I think that will also help you see Jesus more clearly. Let's pray. God, may we see you. May we see how you show up in the world. May we see your handiwork, your artistry, your poetry that you write in the hearts and lives of people in this room and in the people that we meet. God, may the, um, the leaders of this church be godly people who walk with integrity and who follow after you with, with whole hearts. And uh, may this community grow as we all strive to do this together. God, may we internalize today and know, not just in our heads, but in our heart and mind, our soul and in the depths, something beyond rational. Maybe, may we know that we are your children and experience that firsthand and not just know about it. Uh, and God, may the truth of that change us. May we behold who you truly are as John pushes us to do. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.